Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast to help you understand better. And if you're a preacher, preach better from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candlethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Tim McNinch, also a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Our eminent co-host, Dr. Rachel Wren, is off this week, probably using your time off to get up to something spectacular. Spectacular is such a great word. It's fun to say spectacular. spectacular. And it brings us right to our first reading for January 23rd, which is Nehemiah 8. And a real spectacle in its own right, a sight for the eyes and for the ears. Now, the RCL has us doing a little skipping around in the chapter of Nehemiah 8 to avoid having the lector trip over a bunch of complicated names like uh, Mattathia and Shema and Aniah and Uriah. <laughs> there are a ton of Hebrew names highlighted in this short passage. Besides Ezra, there are at least 26 other specific names here. <laughs> so the, the organizers of the lectionary have extended mercy to the lector for the week. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. These names would be a challenge for anyone to get right, even for someone who studied Hebrew. It's, it's a bit of a stumbling block. But the careful attention to names and naming in this short passage is a matter that I want to talk about later with you. Mm. But for now, let's dig right in by talking about the lectionary passage, which is Nehemiah 8. And like I said, we're skipping around. So it's verses 1 through 3, and then a skip of verse 4, and then to verses 5 through 6 in the reading, and then finally again to verses 8 through 10. Great. So what do you think we should talk about first? I mean, this this looks like a preacher's dream. There's this worship sequence that includes a riveting preacher, an attentive congregation, and lots of leaders sharing in ministry. Right. I mean, it is about as ideal as it gets, right? You've got Ezra <laughs> standing up on a podium, uh, preaching for hours, and a, an attentive congregation that's sitting there, right? And it does look a bit like a dream. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. perhaps we should start by piercing that dream bubble just a little bit. <laughs> Do we have to? I mean, as responsible Hebrew Bible scholars, we probably should just say a little bit about the lively source critical and historical debate surrounding Nehemiah chapter 8. Ah, yes, there's a lot to say there. So, so you want to give us the highlights? <laughs> Yeah, well, for one, we're in the book of Nehemiah, but all of a sudden, here we are with Ezra, the priest slash scribe, who seems to suddenly show up here in the middle of Nehemiah's story without a whole lot of lead up. And that should come as a bit of a surprise if you're reading along in the book. The first seven chapters of Nehemiah are uh, pretty much a first-person narrative recounting Nehemiah's role in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But here, suddenly, in chapter 8, we've got Ezra appearing in this pivotal scene concerning the law. Um, now, we don't need to get super deep into the weeds here, but it is worth pointing out that most scholars believe this passage is probably not original to the Nehemiah story. It's inserted here from the larger story of Ezra to help draw out a larger picture depicting an ideal response to God's law. Mm. So that, that could be sort of a big thing for some of our listeners, like, wait, this section was from somewhere else and it's been brought here and it's the book of Nehemiah, but Ezra is the sort of lead character here. So maybe we could take another minute just to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, it is. And it can get really complicated. But if we just read Nehemiah 8 and its surrounding passages straight through, 
we would really have some historical problems with understanding how the events describe their unfold. Hmm. So just as background, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one work, and there's been a long debate over whether Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries with overlapping missions in the middle of the 5th century BCE, or whether they followed one after the other. The chronology as it's presented in Nehemiah 8 would seem to indicate that Ezra came before Nehemiah to Jerusalem and then after some brief activity stayed silent or left and delayed his primary mission of introducing the law until Nehemiah arrived over 13 years later. Mm. Now, that's highly unlikely, and there are also clues in the text that should clue us in to the fact that this passage was not original to the Nehemiah story. You'll notice that even in the NRSV translation of Nehemiah 8, verse 1 starts off with a lowercase letter. So it starts off with all the people with a lowercase a, hmm. indicating that it's part of a longer sentence. The translators are letting the English reader here know that there's something in the Hebrew that indicates a larger setting for this particular passage. There's a Bob conjunction there that makes it part of a chain of ideas. And in this case, the chain is a bridge between the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 7 and the start of Nehemiah chapter 8, which reads, when the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns, all the people, and that's the beginning of chapter 8, gathered together in the square before the water gate. Mm. Yeah, that's that's helpful context to give. And that little, little Hebrew tidbit there of that Vav conjunction you might uh, have to bring people back to their old, uh, you know, Hebrew lessons from seminary to remember that often that letter Vav is a signal that a story is unfolding, that is building from something that just happened previously. And and you brought that out well. So And we love bringing people back to their Hebrew, don't we? So <laughs> rusty as it is. So let me just come back to this. So most scholars think that this passage was originally part of the Ezra story, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. And in its original context, it followed Ezra 8, as it does in our earliest Greek translation, which we know as first Ezra's. Uh, what we know now as Nehemiah 8 was probably inserted and arranged to fit here. And this is the important point, because it helped develop a composite picture. This passage that includes the reading of the law in a public square in chapter 8, then is followed by a confession of sin in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and then a solemn commitment by the community to observe God's law in chapter 10. So there's a great flow to this worship sequence, and that is by editorial design. It's painting an ideal portrait of how God's people could respond to the reading of God's word as it is faithfully preached and also made understood by responsible leaders. Mm. So all of this investigation into the composition of this and where things were brought from, what we can see is this editorial picture, this scene of ideal worship laid out here. And Ezra's part in reading the law is really key to how this unfolds. Right. And it holds the center of the book of Nehemiah then. So we really do have a shape that the wall is being built and then the law is being read and the people are at the center of this picture. And I want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the dynamics of that scene, right? So um, as I've started talking about the people, even in verse one, we see that they're the ones that initiate the action, right? It's all the people who gather as one in a public place. And they're the ones that ask Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses. 
Now, I'll put in another little bit of historical debate about what exactly <laughs> this book is or document is that Ezra is reading from. Is it perhaps some form of Deuteronomy or a longer writing resembling the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch as we know it, or perhaps some other collection? Let's just say that is a whole other nest uh, <laughs> that we're not going to completely dive into. And the sort of short answer is we're not sure That's right. what Ezra's reading from, but we have some good guesses. In any case... Ezra obeys the people's request, and he brings this teaching, this reading, before an assembly of both men and women, and verse 2 says, anyone who can understand. So that should help us see that this is a fleshed-out picture of men, women, and probably older children, too. And that's worth noting, because it's rare when women, young people, or children are identified clearly in a religious gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, and here they are. They're being made visible in this passage. And that paints a picture of a broad intergenerational listening congregation. It's the whole community. And the setting here is that they're gathered on the first day of the seventh month. Now, this date becomes a significant marker in the Jewish calendar. The first day of the seventh month would eventually become the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Mm. Basically, this is like a an annual recommitment celebration. It's kind of like a, a New Year's resolution for the whole congregation. Yeah, yeah, right. So it is sort of like a communal New Year's resolution, and it even ends in a party, right? So um, <laughs> past the lectionary reading in verse 10, Nehemiah orders the people after this reading of the law to celebrate with choice food and sweet drinks and to share their blessings. Now, and it's worth noting here that, you know, it's got kind of a celebratory feel. There's a lot of physicality and movement in this, what would become New Year's worship service. The people are responsive. If you look through the passage, their whole bodies are involved. And that's worth picturing. The people are lifting their hands. They're also bowing their heads. They're getting down on their faces to the ground. And not all of these postures appear comfortable. This is not a quiet service either, right? There are people mm -hmm. speaking, so men and women appear to be asking questions, seeking answers, and there are leaders that are moving through this congregation, responding, explaining, answering. And Ezra, who's up on this podium, is also with fellow readers who are described as reading from this book of the law for several hours, right? So the text is from early morning or dawn to midday. Uh, and if you add that up, we're looking at something like six hours of preaching here. <laughs> Wow. So, okay. So all of you out there preparing your sermon, I think you should do a six hour sermon on this text. I think that would. Oh my you know. God. Preaching pitfall. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's also something to remember, right? So I, I kind of was talking about how this is a dreamlike or ideal picture, but by telling us something about how long this is and what kinds of postures are being taken, I want to paint also a larger picture of preaching not always being comfortable, neither for the congregation or for the preachers or for the different ministry leaders. In fact, verse 9, which follows immediately after the lectionary reading, shows that the congregation was responding with weeping and mourning. So mm. there's real determined work here, and it's complicated on both the part of the preachers, the different ministers, and the congregation. This is more than just a flash-in-the-pan moment. This is a real uh, event. It's, it's extended, and it has a real sort of emotional and life-changing impact on everybody who's gathered there. And I also, I think I alluded earlier to the number of names that were mm. um, originally excluded out of the lectionary reading, but I want to bring our attention back to that because although the lectionary reading eliminates them here, I want to highlight the value of these 26 other names 
that are inserted at regular intervals in the passage. Now, they seem to indicate to me the shared responsibility of preaching. And that's an important point to see that it's not the picture of a lone preacher high above on a podium preaching down at a congregation, but the image that's painted in this portion of Nehemiah 8 is one of shared leadership. In verse 4, Ezra has at least 13 other people standing on the platform right next to him, on his left and his right. In verse 7, there are at least 13 others named and Levites who seem to also be assisting with the reading and interpretation. It's worth dwelling on a bit the language in verse 8. These skilled leaders were reading from the scroll and breaking it down. In the Hebrew, the, the word is parash. It's literally separating it into understandable chunks mm -hmm. for its intelligence, for its wisdom, for its hekel. The work of preaching here is shared. And perhaps this might be a good week to name or at least gesture toward that idea. Yeah, I think that's a really key point. This is all about liturgy, right? And that's... If we're, you know, a little Greek etymology there, right? The work of the people. This yeah. is something that involves the whole community. So I think that's great. Uh, how would you advise preachers to think about incorporating that kind of an idea into what they do? Should we consider some like pitfalls or preaching angles? Sure. Right. So I think one pitfall to avoid uh, is to airbrush this picture, right? Into one of preacherly perfection. I think um, Nehemiah, it kind of lends itself to that image of perfect harmony where, you know, there's a riveting preacher, there's a rapt audience, and there's, you know, this volunteer army of skilled and competent leaders. Now, that's pretty ideal. And uh, as mm -hmm. many of you preachers will know, not common. <laughs> <laughs> and the temptation this week is compounded by the gospel passage for this week, which is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 14, 21. That's Jesus' inaugural message in Luke, where he reads from the scroll of Isaiah to great and wide acclaim. Mm -hmm. But that same gospel reading does not include the end of the chapter, Luke 4, when the congregation tries to throw Jesus off a cliff. <laughs> exactly. So sometimes a perfect preaching moment happens and everything seems to flow together. But as I've tried to highlight in talking about the way this story comes to us and how Nehemiah 8 has been arranged and organized, the reality is more messy. There's a lot under the surface. And when we look at the larger picture of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a far more fractured picture of community. The book, in fact, ends with the tragic expulsion of foreign women and children. Right, right. Yeah, the book of Nehemiah ends on that really fraught note. Yeah, so as we're talking about pitfalls and angles, I mean, congregational life is perhaps punctuated by inspired moments, by memories like this one in chapter um, eight of Nehemiah, where God is present in the preaching, there's shared and skilled and generous leadership and a motivated congregation. But that certainly isn't what we should expect every day, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So one preaching angle I'd like to throw out there is the way this passage draws on that shared work of preaching, right? So maybe it's a week to highlight the contributions of members of the congregation, their continued presence and value. Who are the folks that lead with skill and are sitting with you? Who are some folks who are in the pews and perhaps less recognized for their work? Um, maybe it's time to consider the diversity of your listening congregation. Who is there? who is named and who is not. You're absolutely right. This passage lends itself to that kind of reflection. Fantastic. 
Thanks, Rosie. Great, you're welcome. <laughs> well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Remember, friends, that all of our episodes are over there at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources, and now your very own First Reading swag on the merch page. And if you're on Facebook, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you to those of you who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us out. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Canethel. Be safe and be well.